Thank you, Beth. Coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you talking to the Lord and such a great truth that is. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, beginning verse 20 of that chapter. As we are still in those days in which Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem facing the Passover week. There have been three basic movements to this particular event. The first one was when he went to the house and there Mary broke the perfume and anointed his feet, uh, the most despised part of the body. Yet she anointed his feet with with a very valuable, very precious perfume, wiped his feet with her hair, and and worshipped him in humility, basically saying, you are Lord and you are all that matters. I don't care what these around me think. I don't care what your disciples think about the wastefulness of of a year's wages being poured out on you. I am here to worship you. I am here to submit myself before you. I am here to humble myself in your presence. And that's really all that mattered to Mary. There was a quietness. There was a there was a sincerity of heart as she worshiped at, his, at Jesus' feet. Then they rise up and they go out and they start back into Jerusalem and, and Jesus finds a donkey and fulfilling the, the passage from Zechariah 9.9 and another passage from, from Psalm 118, we see that Jesus rode into town on the back of that donkey and the people took palm leaves and they, they went out to greet him in great masses and great droves And they waved those palm leaves and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was a a zeal and there was an exuberance and there was a a worship it sounded like that was was just filling the corridors and filling the streets of Jerusalem unlike anything that had ever been seen. They knew that the scripture was being fulfilled, I think, at that particular moment. The only problem is they expected it to be fulfilled in a way that Jesus was not coming to fulfill it. And there, but there was a zeal, there was an excitement. There ought to be a zeal and an excitement in our worship, but it ought to be a zeal and excitement that is not like theirs, but one that is rooted in the humble submission before Christ of Mary. It doesn't tell us if Mary and Martha and Lazarus were in that crowd. There's every reason to believe they were. After all, they had After he had been at their house, the people heard that Jesus was coming to the city, and it said many followed from Bethany, and many came after him, and many came out to see him, and many were looking for him, saying, we want to see this man Jesus. We also want to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So there's every indication, at least by implication, that Mary and Martha and and Lazarus were there with the crowd, shouting also, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be him who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, there's every reason to believe that Mary's quiet humility, quiet worship broke out in a zealous exuberation before the living Christ. I mean, there's a reason to believe that she not only had the humility, but she had the zeal to go along with it as they watched Jesus ride in Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. There was a clarity in their voices. They knew what they were saying, but yet they did not realize that what they were saying was fulfilling prophecy about a Messiah that was going to come and was going to die. So you have the house scene with Mary, you have the mob scene, the crowd scene, crying out praises to him as he enters the city. 
And now you have a scene where a group of, of Greeks, Gentiles, want to see Jesus. I love the way John words this. Listen to what John says starting in verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Now, let me just make this clear because you might say, wait a minute, the Passover, they're going to the Passover. The Passover is a, um, is a Jewish feast. It's not a, not a Gentile feast. What are, what are Greeks or Gentiles doing going up to the feast? Understand, these are Gentiles or Greeks who no doubt were what were referred to as God-fearers. They, they were Gentiles, but they had come to believe in God, the one and true living God, through Judaism. And so they had probably gone through all of the rituals. They had gone through all of the rites to be made Judaized in, in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the synagogue. And so these Greeks are men and women who believe in Christ. Uh, excuse me, believe in God, but not yet Christ. They, they come and they know there's a reality in in what's taking place. But they know there's something special about Jesus. And so they say, they come and they say, as we're coming up to worship, on verse 21 it says, then these then came to Philip, who was from uh, Bethesda of Galilee, and began to ask him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered and said to them, The hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life, to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now this is that third episode building up to moving toward the passion, moving toward the death of Christ. That third episode of entering the city, Mary anointing him in Bethany, now the crowds praising him and cheering him on. And now Greeks coming out of the crowd and coming up to, uh, to Philip and saying, Philip, we would see Jesus. Would you show us Jesus? Sir, we just wish to see Jesus. What a tremendous request. What an unbelievable thought. They knew that Andrew and Philip and these other men had been with Jesus, had walked with him, had seen the miracles, had seen and heard the teachings of Jesus, and now they're just saying, listen to, to Philip, listen, we just want to see him. We would like to talk with him. May we have an audience with him, if you would not mind. Philip, it seems like, is not really sure what to do, so he goes to Andrew. I love Andrew. Andrew's very back of the scenes. You don't hear a lot about him throughout the, uh, any of the Gospels, really. We know that he's Peter's brother, and we know that at one time when, when he discovered who Christ was and he saw that he was the Messiah, he went and found his brother Peter at the fishing nets and said, Come, I found the Messiah. I found the promised one and brought him back to meet Jesus. And that's the thing about Andrew. Every time you see Andrew in the Scriptures, every time he's mentioned... 
he's not doing anything really miraculous. He's not doing anything that just kind of wows you. But every time you see Andrew mentioned, especially in John's gospel, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. And just let that soak in a moment. Every time Andrew is mentioned, he is bringing someone to introduce them to Jesus. These Greeks must have seen something in Philip and Andrew's life. They must have seen something that was different about them. And they come to them and they say, you know, they're being very polite. They're following, I guess, what you might consider chain of command or proper order. They come to those around him. They don't just go barge in and say, Jesus, here we are. We're a bunch of Greeks and we're here to see you. They said, listen, we would like to see Jesus. They must have seen something in Andrew's life. They must have seen something in Philip's life that caused them to be drawn to them to say, look, can we just talk to him? Can you, can, you, can you get us in to see this one who everybody's talking about, who, who the Jews, the Pharisees even say, oh, we're not getting anything done because the whole world is going after him. Can you, can you get us in so we can see him? I don't know if you see this as, as clearly as I want you to or not, but I sometimes miss it myself. There seems to be that when we are living what God has called us to be, when we are being what God has called us to be as disciples, and he'll talk about that in a minute, what it means to be a disciple of his, but when we are living that before a watching world who in many ways hates God, who in many ways hates the gospel, who in many ways hates Christ, I mean, that's very clear, but there are many times when we are living out what we are called living out, and we are not ashamed of that, and we are not hiding that or trying to be something that we say we're not, People kind of tend to ask that question. Sir, we would see Jesus. We would wish to see Jesus. Shouldn't they be asking us that same question? I think, to be honest with you, and maybe I get a little personal this morning, both to myself and to you, I think the essence of why the church in America today is so lacking in real evangelism in really taking the gospel to our communities and then beyond to the world is wrapped up in this passage right here. I think this is a diagnostic passage that Jesus is laying out just kind of as an aside when these Greeks come to him. It's not a major point. It's not, it's not like he sits down and says, now I'm going to give you a discourse on evangelism or I'm going to give you a discourse on the Christian life or I'm going to give you a discourse on the Christian life that will lead to true evangelism. He just kind of, they come to see him and he says, well, you know, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you something that's very important. We live in a day that I grieve about of what I call shallow, man-centered evangelism. Most evangelism today is not about really seeing Jesus in all his glory and seeing Jesus doing a work in our life that so compels people to ask the question. Much evangelism today is nothing more than, hey, if you raise your hand, walk an aisle, sign a card, go through a baptistry, that's all that matters. And we'll do anything in the world to get them down there. 
I've seen Bible school classes before who ask the question, if you love Jesus, raise your hand. What six-year-old is not going to raise their hand? You, you ask that in a group of adults, they might be a little more cautious. Because maybe they've been taught through the years that just to say you love Jesus doesn't mean anything. But if you say you really love Jesus, it means you really love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, or at least that's your desire. And very few of us can raise our hand on that one. But I think what Jesus is getting to here is, is, is a very difficult passage. Listen, verse, verses 24 through 26, they're tough. There's some hard sayings there. You want to talk about hard sayings of Jesus, they're wrapped up right there. And it's just an aside. But I think it's the key to why the church is ineffective in real evangelism. And maybe why we need to consider that as Grace Baptist Church. If we are being, not just doing. I, I remember 20 years ago, sitting in the chapel at Southern Seminary and hearing Al Mohler, the, the newly elected president, preach a sermon from that pulpit, his inaugural sermon. And, and uh, we were just up there a couple of weeks ago for his 20th anniversary sermon. He kind of took the same theme, reversing it all the way through. But I loved his first sermon. It, it took, you know, we have, a, we have a saying in America, and it's, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a go-get-em kind of saying. It says, well, don't just stand there, do something. We're always talking about it. We need to be able to doing something. Well, Moeller on that particular day preached a sermon in chapel in which the title was, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Now, you've got to realize the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1993, when he became president, had become literally a cesspool of liberalism. It denied the gospel, it denied the resurrection, not everybody, but many there denied the resurrection, denied the virgin birth, they denied the, the deity of Christ, they denied the exclusivity of Christ. I mean, it, was, it went on and on. It was a cesspool of liberalism and a cesspool of unbelief. And his point was, we as Baptists are so busy about worrying about doing something, all our programs, all of our, all of our stuff to do, that we have forgotten that doing something must begin by standing somewhere and standing on truth and standing on the, the righteousness of Christ, not just running about doing something to try to build up some numbers and, and boost some statistics. Now, we'll tell you that 10 years later on his 10th anniversary, he preached a sermon in chapel in celebration of that anniversary in which he preached, don't just stand there, do something. That is, for 10 years now, we've focused on standing on the truth, and, and we've stood on that truth. Now let's put that truth to work. Let, let's take the gospel to the nations. Let's, let's go around the world with the truth on which we stand. And say that to us as grace. We've spent a lot of time in the past seven years, as we have seen God do a mighty work here. We've talked about theological truth. We've talked about doctrinal truth. We've talked about standing on doctrinal statements that are grounded in the Word of God. And we've said, we must stand on that truth. And I dare say that most people who are regulars at Grace Baptist Church, and especially our membership who are covenant members of this body, can probably give you some pretty straightforward answers about what the gospel is, who Jesus Christ is, what it takes to be a believer, and all of the things that go along with that. Our knowledge of that is very very real and very solid. But it's probably time we not just stand there 
But we take that that God has taught us and God is teaching us and God is building into us and we do something with it. But there is a connector between those two that is vital and I believe that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. When he talks to those Greeks... Jesus, Philip and Andrew came then to Jesus and said, listen, there's some Greeks out here who want to talk to you, some Gentiles who want to talk to you. Very unusual. And Jesus said a strange thing. He didn't say, sure, bring them on in. Let me, let me meet with them. I'll be glad to see them. I mean, he obviously saw them. But this is what he said. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Back in Cana, at the wedding feast, when, when Jesus was there and turned the water into wine, you remember that event, first miracle, showing that the old is giving way to the, to the new, that, that the law is giving way to the gospel and to grace, and, 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 and you can't put old wine and new wine skins, or new wine and old wine skins, it'll burst. I mean, Jesus building that. At, at the wedding feast of Cana, when Mary came to him and said, listen, this is the problem. You've got to do something, Jesus. He went in and did it, but he looked at his mother and said, mother, my hour has not yet come. Woman, my hour has not yet come. Now he says, my hour is here. My hour to be glorified. My hour to be be, demonstrate who I really am. My hour for everybody, the world over, everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in, in Israel, everybody ultimately across this globe will see that I am who I said I am. I, I, I did do what I said I did, and I am now going to show the world everything. The hour is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he gives these three little verses of teaching. Truly, truly, verily, verily. If you want it in the vernacular of today, listen to this. Don't miss this. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. But if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Strange. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is about to be the sacrificial, perfect sacrificial lamb of God, the one who is about to take away the sin of the world, the one who is about to, uh, to hang on a cross and die there, be buried three days later, resurrected in newness of life, 40 day, days later, ascend into heaven. And he talks about a grain of wheat. How insignificant. How simple. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. Some of you did, and some of you still farm today. But, but I, I did have, my, my grandmother always had a big garden, so I, I kind of understood planting things. 
And he says here, if a, if a grain of wheat falls to earth and dies, if it doesn't fall to earth and die, it, it, it remains. It's just alone. I, I, I thought about that with just a kernel of corn or, 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 or just a, a, some kind of a nut or a peanut or something. You know, just, if you've got one kernel of whatever in your hand that is a potential seed, and you just kind of say, you know, I, wanna, I want that to really be something big, and I don't want to get it dirty, so I'm going to lay it right here on this pulpit, and this time next year, maybe we'll have a stalk of corn growing up right out of the pulpit. You look at me, and you say, you're crazy. That thing's just going to lay there. And okay, how many years you wait, or how long you wait, it's just still going to be just a kernel of corn, or just a kernel of wheat, doesn't matter. But if you take that one kernel and you, you put it in the ground, and you cover it up, and it dies there, literally decays, literally is broken, it breaks open, something happens in germination down in that ground when the wheat or the corn dies, and, and it breaks open, and life shoots out of it, it grows up, and the next year that one kernel, you got all sorts of more kernels coming out of it. I may not be agriculturally exact here, forgive me on that. I'm a pastoral theologian, not a, not a farmer. But you know the picture. Much corn comes from it. Many more kernels come from it. Jesus, first of all, applies that to his own life. He said, I want you all to understand, you're thinking I'm coming into Jerusalem to sit on the throne. You think I'm coming into Jerusalem in order to drive out all of the Romans and all of the persecutors and all of those who would not obey the law of Moses. I want you to understand, that's not why I'm here today. I'm like, a, I'm like a grain of wheat. I'm going to be put in the ground. I'm going to die. And by dying, I'm going to bear much fruit. By dying, I'm going to set up a kingdom, and I'm going to call a people, and I'm going to establish a body of believers that's going to literally change the world. If I die, I will bear much fruit. And that happened. He died. He went into the ground from the cross. He rose from the dead, resurrected, ascended into heaven, and he changed the lives of of 11 men and and many others around them initially. And, And then he called a man called Saul of Tarsus and made him the apostle Paul. And then he called many others, and Paul went out and started churches all over the the known world at that time, and before you knew it, this, this one life, this one kernel of wheat, this one grain of wheat had fallen and, been, and been die, had died, and much grew out of it. The immediate application is Jesus here. He, he's telling us that we're going to see next week, he's going to foretell his death even more clearly, but here he's hinting, here he's sharing, here he's saying, just like the wheat has to die, I've got to die. And he did. He did. He died on the cross. He died in our place. We sang about he bore the wrath that was reserved for me and for you. And out of that, he bore much Then he makes application, not just to himself, but to us. 
And I really think here, again, I want you to see that this is the key to why the church is ineffective in evangelism in their community, not in the world. It's easy to get on an airplane or take a bus ride and go somewhere where people don't know you and come as the evangelist or the, uh, or the missionary. It's easy to do that. Nobody knows you there. You can be anything for six days. You can say anything for six days. You can look like anything for six days. But what about where you live? What about starting the very heart of it? I like Jesus saying four very hard things here. And, and as one writer said, they're four very hard things, but they're also in this passage four very glorious things. And, and what I hope you see by the time we're through in just a minute is that they're both in the same. He starts out by saying, in verse 24, talking about himself, but then the way he ties it into 25 and 26, I I think he's talking about us too. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. That's a hard saying. Because Jesus basically, in this passage, paralleling what I had Scott read as the the worship scripture today out of out of Luke chapter 9 uh, out of and, and it's also stated in Matthew 16 you know it's the same parallel idea a man who saves his life will lose it a man who loses his life for my sake will save it will gain it and Jesus is saying here unless you die to self Unless you come to that Philippians 2 idea of, hey, it's not about me, it's about Christ. And when it's about Christ, it's not about me, it's about serving other people. And it's about caring about other people. And it's about building up other people. Unless you come to that, you don't understand the essence of the Christian life. Jesus said, listen, a kernel kernel of corn or a grain of wheat or a disciple of mine must die. Unless it dies, it cannot die bear fruit. Now, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about dying to self. He goes on, second hard saying, he says in verse 25, he who loves his life, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. You know, we live in a day that says, hey, you got to love yourself, man. If you don't love yourself, you can't love anybody else. You've got to have strong self-esteem. We spend millions, no, we spend billions of dollars in our education system trying to build up self-esteem. Oh, that person's got some poor self-esteem. We've got to build it up. Don't tell anybody they sin. It hurts their self-esteem. Don't tell anybody there's something wrong in their life. That will really destroy their self-esteem and their self-image and their self-love. We've got to tell people, you know, you've you got to, you got to like yourself and love yourself and build yourself up. Jesus said, if you love yourself, if you love your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, (laughs) that's a strong word. And the context there is not so much, oh, I loathe myself, so I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to, you know, self-flagulate. I'm going to beat myself and I'm going to, hate myself so much I'll just be mean to myself. That's not it at all. Hating yourself is just recognizing that it's not all about you. He who loves 
his life loses it, but he who hates his life in this world gains life eternal. It's a hard saying. It's a hard saying. It's a hard truth. A hard thing. Thirdly, he says in verse 26, the first part of that, he says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of that. I wish I did, but I, I, I spent too much time trying to get to it. And, and, but, but if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus said, follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and be my disciple. Now, that, that's a hard saying. What does it mean, take up your cross? Does that mean, whoops, before I go out this morning, I've got to be sure i got my lapel pin on. That's a cross. Doesn't mean, oh, if I'm a woman, I've got to be sure I got my, and some men, wear my cross necklace around my neck. Does that mean I've got to be sure that as I go out, there's some kind of a cross symbol on the bumper of my car? Doesn't mean any of that. I, I watched just this past week at a particular awards program. I didn't watch the awards program. I saw news clips. But I saw somebody defaming defaming the name of Christ. Have a cross on. Yeah. Did that person take up their cross that day and so they were following Jesus and everything's fine because they had a cross on, although their life and their words were totally blasphemous? No. When Jesus says in those passages, take up your cross and follow me, he's meaning the same thing he's talking about here. It says, if you follow me, if you, if you, you want to serve me, if you want to be my disciple, then you must follow me. And following me means taking up a cross, and the cross is a symbol of death, and that means you die daily to self. So there's a, there's a crucifixion daily. There's a death daily. That again, what is, what is happening is not all about me. It's not what I can get or what I can, can benefit from. It's how can I care? How can I be like him, following him, give, living his example because of his Holy Spirit filling my life because I've died to self and, and living out Christ's likeness? I've got to be honest with you. That one rips at my heart. because I'm far from dying to self like I need to. I hope that doesn't wreck you as a member of Grace Baptist or a visitor that the pastor would say, that's a hard saying. I struggle with that every day, but I do. Man, I want to I wanna like myself and I want to be liked. Don't you? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to think me some kind of religious fanatic. I mean, I don't mind telling them I'm a pastor because most pastors they've seen are just not what they ought to be anyway, sadly. I don't want to be like that. Boy, it's hard. It's a hard saying. You've got to follow me. Take up your cross. Follow me. Die to yourself. Be like a grain of wheat. Die so that you can bear fruit. And then the fourth thing, hard saying he says there is basically just simply serve me. You know, take on the role of a waiter to Christ. 
take on the role of a waiter at his table and do his bidding, no matter what the demand is or no matter how lowly the status might be. You know, some of you are going to go out to lunch today. And, and someone's going to come to your table, and they're going to, they're going to come there to wait on you. And, and they come to your table, and you say, look, I'd like, a, uh, I'd like a sirloin steak. I'd like it medium rare, and I'd like a baked potato. And make you hungry. I'm getting hungry. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you ask that. And the waiter says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what you really want. You really want some chitlins. It's the most disgusting thing I can think of. You know, you really don't want a steak. You, you want some chitlins. I'm going to get you a big old bowl of chitlins, and uh, I'll bring some cornbread with cracklings in it, and you'll, you'll, that's what you'll have today. What are you going to do? You're going to say, this is, this is no waiter. This is no server. Or, or if they bring what you did order out, and they say, now let me tell you that steak, let me tell you what's really good on that steak, mayonnaise. And they just glob it all over it. You know, that's not a server. That's not a servant. That's not a waiter. That's somebody doing what they think might be good, perhaps, but not what you asked for. When Jesus says, if anyone serves me, if you want to serve me, follow me. Be the role of the waiter. Do my bidding. Do what I command. You know, that's what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Die to self, not just in a profession of faith one time. Tonight, on this night, I'm going to die to self, and then tomorrow I'll take it back. But I'm saved, because I'm, and I'm safe. No, that's not the Christian life. That's why Jesus said another hard st- statement in, in Matthew 7, 14, in the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was coming to that passage to the end and he said you know the gate's narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and there and, and there are few that find it i think there'll be myriads and myriads of believers but in comparison with the world population there'll be few who find that way by the grace of god but many in the world look at the church many in the world look at believers and they say well they're no different from me those are hard sayings die fall on the ground die you know if you hate your life you'll keep your life that's hard if you if you serve me follow me that's hard and then if you serve me truly serve me that's hard all those are hard statements but they're also glorious because he said if you're like i am and you're like a grain of wheat, and you fall in the ground and die, you die to self, you take up your cross and follow me, then you bear much fruit. You'll you'll have people like those Greeks saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Tell us about Jesus. How has Jesus changed your life? What difference has Jesus made in your life? Death is not in vain, it is significant, it bears fruit, spiritual death. The second thing he says, you know, if we love our life, we'll lose it. If we hate our life in this world, we'll, we'll find life eternal. That, that's a hard saying, but why is it? What will be the outcome? The outcome of not hating it is we lose eternal life. We miss it. 
when we lay down our life for Christ, then Christ will put in our own hands His glory. Finally, He says, follow me. Follow Him to Calvary. Follow Him where He goes. Jesus says, my servant you'll be. He'll use those words about glorification again when we get to chapter 17. Father, you have glorified your Son. Now glorify these with me. That my glory has shown them you and that you're glorifying them in me and putting my life in them will be a glorification that the world will see that I really am who I say I am. Don't miss this. The truth of this passage is the overflowing, if you will, secret. I hate the word secret, but the word secret. To church and Christians being effective in the gospel. We die. We hate our lives in this world that are selfish and self-centered we follow Jesus on the Calvary road to death. We, we become servants of His. And when we do, we find out that we bear much fruit. Spiritual fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Spiritual fruit. Other people seeing that fruit and wanting to taste of it and eat of it in their own life. We bear much fruit. We keep our lives for eternal life. We join Jesus where He is in glory, and the Father honors us. He protects us. He guides us. He infills us. That we might make a difference where we are planted, where we live, where you are. I don't care whether it's in your home, in your church, at your school, on your job, or in your neighborhood. When you die, then, and only then, will you bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Father, this is a hard passage. It's hard because it's true. It's hard because these are things we'd rather not think about. But you have shown us death is the only way to life. Spiritual death is the only way to spiritual life. Dying to self is the only way to living in you and you in us. Father, it's the great truth of union with Christ. It's the, the great, great truth of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Father, it's what you've called each of us to in Christ. 
glorified Jesus. Now, Father, speak to us and break our hearts that we too may be glorified, not for our own glory, but for your glory in every way. For we pray in Jesus' holy. Father, we pray for those here this morning that are not believers, that have never trusted Christ. Lord, break their heart over their sin and let them see, Lord, that you have borne the wrath. Draw them to yourself by your grace that they might believe in Jesus. cross daily.